At this time, I'm going to invite my friend, Greg Fondell, to come up. Greg is a resident chaplain, but also, when he's in town, attends with us. And so, Greg, we're just delighted that you're sharing the word with us today. Thank you, Ron. It is always a privilege to uh, have the chance to speak with you on a Sunday morning and, uh, and also to sit with you on Sunday mornings and listen to Rob preach. And uh, I, I hope that uh, we'll have something that uh, we can talk about together today that might build us up a little bit. We're going to talk about uh, kingdom life. And uh, I, I should mention a little bit about my role as a corporate chaplain. Um, I came to that role without having any idea what that was. And, and I've uh, heard from that, uh, in that perspective from a lot of folks, well, what is that job? Basically, it's, it's kind of like being a company pastor. Uh, I work with an organization called uh, Alexandria Industries. Uh, it's a company that's based in Alexandria, but it has facilities in Dallas and uh, in Indianapolis and also offices in Chicago and St. Louis and Detroit. Um, and uh, it's just a, a wonderful privilege to work with this company. We have probably about 900 employees and uh, get around to different, uh, different areas to uh, visit different cultures where the company exists uh, and try to figure out uh, different ways in which we can kind of help them to take a step closer uh, to a relationship with Christ. We don't force relationship. We don't force conversations but we have lots of great opportunities to provide counseling and care, uh, to provide Bible studies and growth groups for folks who are interested in, in being part of those things. We also do a lot of teaching about uh, servant leadership and uh, ethics uh, in business. And uh, it's a great privilege. It's a great gig. I feel like uh, it really comes down to about three things, that I get to study and I get to pray and I get to visit with friends. And that's a really wonderful privilege. Uh, and, a, and a real exciting ministry. I want to um, just begin with a word of prayer. And uh, this is a lovely day, and it was kind of prompted this way to, to think about uh, uh, both the opportunity that we have to come together and worship, but also the, the beautiful day that it is. And so I'd like to ask you to join me in a prayer of thanksgiving. God, we give you thanks for things that we seldom mention. For the sight of a seagull gliding gracefully before diving to scoop its dinner, for cabins and campsites with no clocks or computers or phones, for a sudden rainstorm that drenches the earth with water and fills the sky with loud rolls of thunder and zigzagging bolts of lightning, for fireflies and glittering stars on summer nights, for strawberries and rhubarb and the pleasure of tasting them together, for a song to sing, whether anyone wants to hear it or not. For a teacher as devoted to students as to knowledge. For a child who smiles with pride as she peels burst bubblegum from her cheeks. For the expression on the wrinkled face of an older person that affirms that joy is possible at any stage of life. For grace. For the very idea of it for signs of it, for the peace that comes with it. God, you're the giver of every good and perfect gift, and we thank you for everyone. In the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to live gratefully, we offer our prayer. 
Amen. Mark 1, 14 through 18, says this. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. In 1989, two brothers from Boston started a t-shirt business. For five years, Bert and John traveled the East Coast, and they hawked their t-shirts on the streets and selling door-to-door in college dorms. They lived on peanut butter and jelly, they slept in their van, and they showered wherever they could. And as they tell it, they didn't make much money, and women were not impressed. In the summer of 1994, they arrived home from a road trip with $78 in their pockets, and they were about ready to call it quits. That's when they created a simple, smiling stick figure named Jake, and a simple phrase, life is good. And inspired by their friend and his contagious grin, they emptied their bank account and printed up 48 Jake shirts for a street fair in Cambridge, Massachusetts. By noon, they were sold out, and a business was born. Not just a business, though, a movement. Bert and John were not just selling clothes. They were on a mission to spread good feelings and good deeds wherever they could. Today, Life is Good Incorporated is not only a Fortune 500 company with thousands of outlets worldwide, It's a cause that has raised millions of dollars for charity, that has drawn people together, that has shaped contemporary culture with its message of optimism, simplicity, and goodness. Kind of something we love about that story, isn't it? Maybe it's because it's the story of a couple of guys who just made good. Maybe it's that there's still a market for simplicity and quality. Or maybe it's because it speaks to a longing that we all have to work at something we love, something that makes a positive impact on the world around us. We all want to believe that life is good, that work can be meaningful, and that we can make a difference. What happened to Bert and John can happen to us. No matter how successful or how disappointed we've been with our lives to this point. Today I'd like to introduce you to another set of brothers who were interrupted by an intriguing character whose message captured their imagination. Mark 1, 14 through 15 sets the stage for the encounter. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. These are the first recorded words from Christ's public ministry. Mark is believed to have been the very first gospel that was circulated. And we've got to believe that Jesus chose those words carefully. 
So before we get to the two brothers, let's take a minute and be sure we understand what Jesus is saying here. The time has come. In other words, something's about to happen, something new, something extraordinary, and that something is the kingdom of God. Now, when first century Jews heard the phrase kingdom of God, they thought of a political kingdom established in Jerusalem. When we hear the kingdom of God, we tend to think of heaven. We're both wrong. The kingdom of God isn't a time or a place. The kingdom of God is a life. A life lived under the rule of God. When Jesus announced that the kingdom of God had come near, he was announcing that a new and better life was available. Not in some distant place or some future time, but here, now. To experience that kingdom life, you have to do two things. You have to repent and believe. Now that word repent literally means to turn around, to turn away from one thing and to turn toward another thing. But turn from what? We typically understand it to mean repent from sin, from the things that we do wrong. But notice that Jesus doesn't say, repent of your sins. He just says, repent. And while it's certainly appropriate for all of us to repent of our sins, there's more to repent from than just sin. One commentator puts it this way, to repent is to turn away from what you're doing and embrace wholeheartedly what God is doing. In other words, it means to trade in your old way of life for God's new way of life. Now remember that, because we're going to come back to it a little bit later. And then Jesus says, believe. To experience this kingdom life, you have to believe that such a life is possible and that it's available to you. That word believe is an interesting word too. It it means more than just intellectual assent. Believing isn't just understanding and agreeing. It means to embrace something to such a degree that you act upon it. Let's say you're afraid of flying. You're not sure why, but you've never been able to get on an airplane. But you're intrigued with the idea of flying. So you decide to do some investigation. You talk to some of your friends who fly. And you ask them to describe the experience. You do some reading and you learn that flying is one of the safest ways to travel. You join a fear of flying group where you can discuss your feelings and you can ask your questions. And eventually, you come to a place where you believe that flying is a safe and efficient way to travel. So you buy yourself a ticket. You head to the airport. You walk through the gate and you head down the jetway. But just as you're about to step onto the plane, you notice the nuts and bolts that hold the plane together. You see a mechanic down below fixing something. You look at that little gap between the jetway and the plane itself, and 
you realize that if I step across this, I'm entering a whole new reality. And at the last minute, you refuse to go. I won't go. I can't do it. Now, do you really believe that it's safe to fly? You may understand that it's safe to fly. You may agree that your life might be simpler and happier, a little bit more convenient if you could fly. But until you're prepared to get on the airplane, you really don't believe in flying. In the same way, you haven't really believed in the good news of Jesus Christ until you've entered into that reality until you have actually invited him to rule in your life. So before we go any further, we need to ask ourselves if we believe the good news. I'm not asking if you understand the good news or if you agree with the good news or if you'd like to experience the good news. I'm asking if you've entered into that reality and surrendered to Christ's rule in your life. So the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, the time has come. The kingdom has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In other words, something new is happening. God is establishing his rule in the hearts of people. Turn away from your old way of living and enter into this new way, the way of the kingdom. But what does that way look like? What does it mean to trade in my old life for a kingdom life? Let's go back to the two brothers. Mark, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has placed this story of the call of Simon and Andrew right here at the beginning of his gospel to illustrate what it means to repent and believe the good news. Mark 1, 16 through 18 says... And Jesus, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Mark doesn't tell us an awful lot about these two brothers. In John's gospel, we actually learn that they were disciples of John the Baptist. So they knew something about Jesus, who John the Baptist introduced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Mark doesn't tell us that. Because he wants us to feel the surprising encounter with Jesus, the sudden impact that it had on these two brothers' lives. So the only thing he tells us about them is that they were fishermen. Now, fishing was actually a respectable and generally profitable business in first century Galilee. There were plenty of mouths to feed in the region, and there were plenty of fish in the lake. So these guys were not paupers. They were not 'er ne'er-do-wells. Chances are they were making a decent living. They had families. They had homes. They belonged to a tight-knit fishing community in Galilee. They probably had golf outings and bowling tournaments with some of the people there from Capernaum who were also fishermen. 
The point is that if we were to ask them how they were doing, they probably would have said with a smile, life is good. But then Jesus comes along and he interrupts their lives with this surprising invitation, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. This was surprising on several counts. First of all, it was highly unusual for a rabbi, whom Jesus was, to call his disciples. Usually it was the other way around. Students would approach a respected teacher and they would ask if they could follow him. They would ask if they could be his disciples. But here comes Jesus looking for them. The second surprising thing that he says is, come follow me. He doesn't say, come study the law with me. Come, let's work on Torah together. He says, come follow me. Now, rabbis were teachers about the ways of God. Each rabbi had a distinctive approach in interpreting and and applying scripture. And students or disciples would become apprentices of that method. But Jesus makes this very personal. Follow me. Not just in my way of understanding the scripture, but in my way of living. Apprentice yourselves to me, not to my method. Jesus invited these two brothers into a personal relationship with him. He called them to be with him, to learn from him, to become like him. There must have been something remarkably compelling about Jesus, something about his way of living that captured the brothers' imaginations because we're told that at once, with that literal translation of immediately, they left their nets and followed him. For some of us here today, that's how our Christian experience began. There we were, minding our own business, when living a good life, when Jesus came along and interrupted. Maybe we heard about him in church. Maybe a friend told us about him. Or maybe we picked up the Bible and read about him ourselves. And we were so struck by him, by his life, by his teaching, that we said, I have to find out more about him. And eventually we said, I have to follow him. For me, that moment came when I was nine years old. I was living a good life by nine-year-old standards. I had a happy family, yard to play in, some toys, a little brother to beat up. But at a worship service at a Bible camp, a speaker asked if any of us wanted to accept Jesus as our Savior and live forever with him in heaven. And my hand shot right up in the air. I'd been hearing stories about Jesus all of my life. He was kind and good, and he could do cool stuff like walk on water. Who wouldn't want Jesus to be their friend? Who wouldn't want to go to heaven with him, especially if heaven was like a great Bible camp that never ends? (laughs) Many of you have come to a moment like that, when you said yes to following Jesus. 
It might have happened suddenly. It might have happened gradually. Maybe you were living a pretty good life. Maybe even a pretty sad life. But ever since that time, your life has been about knowing Jesus better and becoming more like him. And that's a great start. But it's only a start. The third surprise about this invitation was that Jesus didn't stop with, follow me. He went on to say, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, I know most of us are used to hearing fishers of men, but I like today's new international version for a couple of reasons. First, Jesus was certainly using the word men inclusively to mean women too, all people. And secondly, the phrase, send you out, captures more accurately what Jesus was saying. He wasn't just calling them, he was sending them. He wasn't just asking them to follow him. He was asking them to join him in his work, to go out into the world, to serve people in his name, to expand the kingdom. And it wasn't just a clever bit of wordplay when Jesus talked about fishing for people. He was making a direct connection between the life that they had been living and the life that he was calling them to. I'm going to take this business of yours, fishing, and I'm going to turn it into a mission. I'm going to take this life of yours, this pretty good life, and turn it into a purposeful life. I want you to follow me, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of others. With that in mind, let me take you back to that word repent that we talked about earlier. Of what was Jesus asking these two brothers to repent? They weren't criminals, they weren't slackers, they weren't hard partiers, they weren't even unbelievers. As far as we know, they were hardworking, church going family guys. Maybe their language got a little bit salty out on the boat every now and then, but as far as we can tell, they were living decent lives. So, Why did they need to repent? Remember, to repent is to turn away from what we're doing and to embrace wholeheartedly what God is doing. It wasn't that what they were doing was so wrong. It was just that it was too small. They were running a business Jesus was offering them a mission. They were making a living. Jesus was offering them a chance to make a difference. Jesus had something so much bigger in mind for these two brothers than a pretty good life on the shores of Galilee. He wanted them to go with him and then to go out and change the world. Let's try to personalize this. If Jesus were to come walking into your life today, if he were to interrupt you at home or at your job or as you work around the house, tell you to repent, what might he be asking you to repent of? Now, maybe there is some sin in your life, some tendency or attitude or behavior that's wrong that keeps getting in the way of the life that you were meant to live. 
And if that's the case, then repentance begins with turning away from sin. But it could be that you're living a pretty good life. It could be that you're following Jesus, that you're following him for your sake to serve your own interests rather than the interests of others. You haven't joined him fully in the work that he wants to do in the world. And if that's the case, then what Jesus wants you to repent of is not a life that's wrong, but a life that's too small. You've settled for making a living when you could be making a difference. Listen to what Bible commentator David Garland writes about this passage. The call and response of these fishermen should shatter our comfortable world of middle-class discipleship. Disciples are not simply those who fill, fill pews at worship, attend an occasional Bible study, and offer to help out in the work of the church now and then. When one is hooked by Jesus, one's whole life and purpose are transformed. That's what it means to repent and believe the good news. It means to follow Jesus into a new way of life, to radically reorient your life around Jesus and his work in the world. And until you've done that, you haven't fully experienced the life of the kingdom. Here's the point I'm trying to get at. Where did we get the idea that you could follow Jesus and not be on mission? When did we separate the gospel of going to heaven from the gospel of going into the world? When I raised my hand at nine years old, it was all about me and Jesus. Jesus would forgive my sins. Jesus would be my friend throughout my life. And Jesus would take me to heaven when I die. And chances are, when you came to Christ, it was also about you and Jesus. Jesus would heal your wounded heart. Jesus would get, set you free from addiction. Jesus would answer your deep questions about the meaning of life. And yes, Jesus would take you to be with him in heaven when your life is over. The gospel is certainly about you and Jesus but that's not the whole gospel. In fact, in the words of Rich Stearns, it's a gospel with a hole in it. Rich Stearns is the president of World Vision. God called him from his comfortable and lucrative position as CEO of Corning, a prestigious company, to take the helm of a struggling nonprofit that was focused on serving the neediest people in the world wasn't an easy or quick decision for him. And he tells the story quite honestly in his book, A Hole in the Gospel. This is what he writes in the introduction. Being a Christian requires much more than just having a personal and transforming relationship with God. It also entails a public and transforming relationship with the world. If your personal faith in Christ has no outward expression then your faith has a hole in it. Jesus didn't say, follow me and I'll take you to heaven. He said, follow me and I will send you out into the world. The gospel isn't about just Jesus and me. 
It's about Jesus and mission. It's about Jesus and others. It's about following Jesus for the sake of others. And if you're wondering why doing good is so important, let me offer you three reasons. First, it's what we were made for. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. These verses make clear that we aren't saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We were formed to do good from the beginning of creation, and we were transformed to do good when Christ forgave us and made us new. Second, it's the work of the kingdom. Jesus didn't just announce that the kingdom had come. He went out and demonstrated it. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He ministered to the lonely. He blessed the children. And when we do these things, when we do good, we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, doing good is what the world desperately needs. People today aren't just asking if Christianity is true. They're asking if Christianity is good. People are tired of hearing us talk about the good news. They want us to be the good news to our community, to our country, to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the life of the kingdom. It's the life that Jesus is calling us to live. Bert and John, the brothers from Boston, discovered that life is good. Simon and Andrew, the brothers from Galilee, discovered that life is about doing good. And the world has never been the same. That's the life that's available to us as we follow Jesus for the sake of others. Would you please pray with me? Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for calling us. We thank you for summoning us to follow you. We ask that you would help us to draw our attention tightly to Jesus so that we might see what you would have us be. Make us like him to be teachers of truth. Make us like him to be performers of miracles. Make us like him to be lovers of the poor and the outcast, the least and the little. Make us like him to be strong when the world tempts us. Make us like him to be ready to bear our crosses. Make us like him forever in heaven when we shall be conformed to him perfectly, when we shall see him face to face. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Let it be so. Amen.